standing for the reading of the word this morning, starting in verse 30 of John chapter 6. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been making our way through John chapter 6. We have seen the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually probably about 15,000 people, 5,000 men. And we saw Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm. And at this point, the crowd followed Jesus to Capernaum, and uh, verse 59 tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue here in this section. And it appears that the crowd's main desire was to get more free bread. That's what they were there for. Now, in response, Jesus told them not to work for food that perishes, He's telling them, don't focus on the physical food. That's our tendency, isn't it? To focus on the physical and not on the spiritual. Don't focus on the physical food, but focus on the food that endures to eternal life. Focus on the spiritual. Um, in verse 28, the crowd asks, what must we do to do the works of God? That was the last sermon that I preached on this. And Jesus said, the works of God is, is to believe in, in him on whom he has sent. So as we pick up this narrative in verse 30, Jesus has just called the crowd to believe in him. He's calling them to believe in him, to trust in him, to come to him. Now what we're getting ready to work through, if this, is, this sermon is part one, We'll likely make this a three-part series. Maybe we might get it all in next week, but it'll probably be a couple of weeks before we finish all of this. This is loaded with all kinds of, of things that we need to slow down and talk about. This passage contains some of the most profound and controversial words in the Bible. Fellowship between Christians have been divided over its meaning. Churches and denominations have sp literally split over 
this issue. And what's pretty amazing is that men are still trying to twist these texts to make it say anything other than what it says plainly here. And so evidently, what Jesus is teaching is not only offensive to the crowd, so offensive that we're going to see in the end that just about everybody, except for the 12, walk away from Jesus. Offensive. Now, what is the offense? Well, we're going to see the main offense here is Jesus teaching the sovereignty of God over salvation. And that's what's offensive. And so we're going to follow the words of Jesus through this. We'll just focus on this particular section today. There is a lot more to come. Um, but not only was it offensive to the crowd in Jesus' day, it's still offensive today. So let's just read it and take these words at face value. And if it, are, if it offends our flesh, then so be it. I, I often, you've heard me say before, if it offends our flesh, it's probably likely from God. So let the world be the ones who reject truth because it's offensive. That should never be in the church. The church should never judge the truth of something just because it hurts or it's offensive. So let's pick it up in verse 30. Jesus has just called the crowd to believe in him. And in verse 30, we get the crowd's response to Jesus' call to faith. So they said in verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they said, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So their response to Jesus' call to believe in him is, well, what sign do you do? Give us, give us a sign. What, what sign? They just saw one of the great miracles of Jesus, the multiplying of fish and loaves, and now they're still asking for more proof. More signs, this is what Paul said, the, the Jews at, look for signs. They ask for signs, right? Now, what this is illustrating here is the depravity of the human heart. They saw Jesus' miracle. They heard his teachings. He called them to believe. But in their response, they refused to believe in him. They were just merely putting Jesus off. They heard, they understood, but they suggested that Jesus merely hadn't done enough to convince them yet. Now, if anyone says today, if I could only see Jesus perform miracles and hear his teaching for myself, then I would believe in him. And the answer to that is, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. These people saw him. They heard him. They saw the miracles. And yet they refused to believe. Cornelius Van Til says about this section, he says about the crowds here, and 
he includes the skeptics of today. He says, these men are sinners. They have an axe to grind. They want to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They will employ their reason for that purpose. Reason is not neutral. We can use reason to reason against the truth. And that's what they're doing here, and that's what skeptics are still doing today. So the crowd is finding every reason not to believe. Again, that's the same as today. And I think it's important to see that um, that because the ver- this verse and the verses below, Jesus is now going to give us one of the best explanations found in Scripture as to why some believe and why some do not. What we're seeing in the crowd is not that they won't believe in Jesus, which is true enough. They refuse to believe. They won't. But the point that Jesus is going to make that is a little bit more controversial is that they can't believe. human heart and the human will is so enslaved by sin. We are born haters of God, haters of God's law, and we are in such bondage to sin that we have no ability on our own, by our own effort, to believe in Christ. And this is the point that Martin Luther makes in his book, Bondage of the Will. Now, Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Let me ask you, is the gospel the things of the Spirit of God? (laughs) Absolutely. The natural person does not accept it. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. It's foolishness to them. And then Paul says, and he is not able to understand them. Did you hear that? He is not able. The natural man is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. If, if, a, if a man has a dead spirit and it requires the Spirit to discern the truth from the Holy Spirit, a person with a dead spirit is not able to discern. Paul says something similar to this in Romans 8, chapter 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. You realize that one of the uh, things about the new covenant is not only will God write his law upon our heart and not only will we love his law he give us he gives us the holy spirit to a, be able to obey his law but the natural man will not submit to God's law because he cannot this is the doctrine of total depravity or total inability the human heart is so corrupt by sin it will never on its own trust in Christ for salvation. Jesus was right in front of them. He had performed 
a great miracle, and he called them to believe, and yet they still refused to believe. What more did they want? Well, apparently they wanted free bread for the next 40 years. Look what they said in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're suggesting to Christ that, hey, you know what would convince us if you feed us for the next 40 years? We'll agree that you're greater than Moses, you know? In other words, what they're saying to Jesus is, hey, you only fed us just one meal. (laughs) You know? I mean, if you want us to believe, then it's going to take more than just one meal. You know, feed us like Moses did in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, this then opens up Jesus' teaching about him being the bread that comes down out of heaven. Look there in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. They were thinking it was Moses. It's not Moses that did it. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Even back in the wilderness those 40 years, it was not Moses that supplied it. God supplied it. Even Exodus says it's from God. It was not from Moses. And so, um, so it, Jesus' uh, Jesus's point is that the reality is that it is God that supplied the bread, and it is God that is supplying you bread right now. That's, that's what this is about. This is God offering you bread. Now, what's interesting here, too, is that we, are, we learn from Jesus that the bread in the wilderness, the manna from heaven, was a sign. It was a sign that was pointing to something greater than himself. The manna that came from heaven in the wilderness, if we read it correctly, is pointing to Jesus who comes down out of heaven to supply bread for the people of God. After all, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. He was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. So, this bread that came down out of heaven in the wilderness was symbolic and pointing to the fact that Jesus would come down into heaven and be the bread of life. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the bread of God. It reminds us, doesn't it, of uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He comes down and gives life to the world. And again, notice that John does not want us to miss this typological connection in the Old Testament. I think that one of the things that I had to recover from in my seminary training (laughs) was just to read the Bible in in a very flat manner, and that is just grammatical, historical, and not really pay attention to the typology. But what's interesting here is the apostle wants us to see it. He said, all throughout the Gospels, he is, he is he is showing us typologically how Jesus fulfills many of the signs of the Old Testament. For instance, in, J, in, in chapter 1, Jesus um, claims to be Jacob's ladder that comes down out of heaven, the mediator between heaven and earth. And 
Angels are ascending and descending on him. He's the link between heaven and earth. In chapter 3, Jesus says that bronze serpent in the wilderness should point to him. When Israel looked upon the bronze serpent and was healed of the, po- of, of the poison from being bit by poisonous snakes, so Jesus said as Israel looked at the bronze serpent on the pole, so we are to look to Christ and we will be healed of the poison of sin. So we look to him by faith. And then here we find that Jesus is the manna from heaven. And so John clearly is teaching us how to read the Bible, how to read the Old Testament and find Christ there. Um, so Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven that nourishes us and satisfies us forever. And he is spiritual bread that gives eternal life to everyone who believes. However, the people here are still not getting it. They didn't get that Jesus was talking about himself. They, they still thought Jesus was talking about some kind of physical bread here. They were still thinking that this physical bread, like manna in the Old Testament, manna, manna in the wilderness, what they were hearing is, if we get this physical bread and eat it, it will give us eternal life. Kind of like the woman at the well, if I give this water, it will give me water to eternal life, spring up forever, right? So give, give me this water, you know. They're still thinking physically. So they're thinking in the Latin, this would be ex opere operato, right? They're, which means from the work performed. They're thinking if they physically ate the bread, they would have eternal life. That the receiving of the bread would give them eternal life. Now, many Catholics still mistakenly believe this today. And what's interesting is their reasoning um, comes from this passage. We'll get there when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we're going to have to look at that. What, is that. what does that mean? But clearly, Jesus is using spiritual words. But at the same time, you cannot miss the overtones to the Lord's Supper there. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat, when we get there, I'm not going to hold or teach transubstantiation. That's what I'm rejecting. But that's where the Catholics are, and many believe by receiving that bread, they gain eternal life by doing the uh, uh, sacraments. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that and make a distinction here of what we really hold to. I know Baptists tend to say, oh, there's no Lord's Supper here, but... It's hard not to see the body and blood of Jesus, the bread and wine, in some of this. So um, we'll we'll get there in a week or two. Now, verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You know what they're saying? Man, we're ready for this eternal supply of bread. Go ahead and start giving it to us. And so, clearly, they're still thinking in terms of physical bread, which leads us to the third point here, and that is the heavenly doctrine of human salvation. Soteriology, um, the doctrines of grace. Now, before we look at these verses, let us first think about 
what is being taught in most, most pulpits across the country today. Now, this was not true at the founding of this country and for many years afterwards, particularly uh, through the first Great Awakening. Uh, these doctrines were loved and taught by most pulpits and most believers in this country. Uh, this was the very source doctrine of John Knox and the Presbyterians, of the Anglicans, of the early Baptists, including uh, Charles Spurgeon and many others. So this doctrine was loved and taught um, for centuries, but the problem was that the Second Great Awakening uh, began a kind of spiritual teaching and awakening that denied these particular doctrines. And since evangelicalism really is a product of that Second Great Awakening, uh, most churches will deny this. And it's interesting to listen to people, how they twist around and flail around trying to prove that what Jesus is saying here is not really what he's saying here. Um, so this is not being taught. What we're getting ready to look at here is not being taught in most pulpits across this country. Put simply, most evangelicals believe that Jesus died on the cross to make salvation possible for every human being make it possible, give the offer, but every human being by their own free will and choice has to receive it. So every human being can accept it or reject it based upon their own choice. Um, so they do not teach that God takes the initiative other than just sending his son to the cross, um, but they do not teach that God takes the initiative to actually change the will and the heart of the sinner but again, leaves the choice to accept or reject based upon man's free will. So they believe that the highest good, the sunum bonum, the sum bonum, or the highest good um, in the universe is not God's sovereignty, but man's free will. That God, they even argue this way without any scriptural uh, support, they even argue that God limits his sovereignty for man's free will. You ever heard anybody argue that? This is not the way Jesus is arguing here. In other words, most evangelicals today deny the doctrine of predestination or divine election. And to suggest the Bible teaches otherwise will be met with an intense, almost uncontrollable anger. I mean, I've been the brunt of that. You know I've been called uh, a heretic for teaching this. I, uh, many people have left the church and because of this teaching. Um, and apparently... Just as Jesus taught it, many people are offended and left. It still is doing the same thing today. The argument usually runs across, not, it's not exegetical usually, because we're not, not only pointing to this for Romans 8, Romans 9, 
Ephesians 1, it all teaches the same thing. The argument against it is usually not, it, well, it's usually not scriptural. It's usually, I don't like it, therefore it can't be true. I had one deacon in a previous church tell me that if this is the God of the Bible, he doesn't want to serve such a God. I told him that that was a very dangerous thing to say. Fortunately, a few years later, he calls me and says, you know that thing that we were talking about in my kitchen? Yep. Uh, I think that's true. I think that's right. So don't, you know, be too concerned if people reject it outright. That's always been the case on this doctrine. And just be patient. And if they really read the scripture and work it through, they'll, they'll see it. And they'll not only not uh, reject it anymore, they'll come to love it. And it will actually make your worship even sweeter. Um, so... The question really is, does the Bible teach this or not? The sovereignty of God, election, predestination, does it teach this or does it not? If the Bible teaches it, it doesn't matter if I like it or not. It doesn't matter if it makes me mad, if it makes me squirm. I should accept it, even if I really don't understand it completely. So look at John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now he's saying, whoever comes to me, that phrase is equated with believing in him. If you look at this verse, you see that? Whoever comes to me, and then the parallel right underneath that is whoever believes in me. So coming to Christ and believing in him are the same thing come to him to believe in him so coming to Christ and believing in him as we're going to see here if he's the bread if we come to him and believe in him it is equated with eating and drinking believing coming to him eating and drinking now this is uh, important to keep in mind as this section unfolds J.C. Ryle wrote our Lord well, it wouldn't be a sermon in this series if I don't quote Ryle, right? Our Lord would have us know that he himself is the appointed food of man's soul. The soul of every man is naturally starving and famished through sin. Christ is given by God the Father to be the satisfier, the reliever, and the physician of man's spiritual need. In him and his mediatorial office, in him and his atoning death, in him and his priesthood, in him and his grace, love, and power, in him alone will empty souls find their wants supplied. In him there is life. He is the bread of life. There goes my grandchild's competing. <laughs> In him alone will empty souls find their want, wanted supplies. In him there is life. He is the bread of life. So when we believe in Christ, when we take him into our lives, when we believe in him, come to him, we take him into our lives, we consume him by faith. He becomes a part of us. 
It's like food and drink. He is the source of life that keeps us alive. He becomes a part of us. We are what we eat, right? If we believe in Christ and, and he becomes a, a part of us. But not only that, he satisfies us. He is all that we need spiritually. We don't need Christ plus something else. He is everything, all that we need. And if we believe in Christ, we will never be spiritually hungry, hungry or spiritually thirsty again. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, Jesus says. Whoever believes shall never thirst. He's talking about spiritual hunger and thirst. He will satisfy it completely. Now notice he says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the, of the famous I am sayings, the ego a me in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. And you all know, we've talked about this before, the ego a me is equating Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so each of the sayings, the seven sayings that we're going to follow as we go through the Gospel of John gives us a little bit of glimpse. Not only is Jesus claiming to be Yahweh, but it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what he came to do, what his mission was. I am the bread of life, he says. Later he says, I'm, I am the good shepherd. And he'll say, I am the door, right? And so this gives us a little, image, little images of, of salvation and what he has came, come to do to save us. So Jesus is telling us here that he is the bread of life, and to receive this bread, they must believe in him. Believing is equated with eating. Now, notice that Jesus, he knows they don't believe in him. They're asking for more signs. Notice that Jesus doesn't drop down to his knees and start begging them to believe in him. He doesn't promise them more bread if they would just believe. He doesn't promise them wealth or health if they would, oh, please just believe in me. Um, what does he say to them? He knows they don't believe. What does he say to them and how does he address their unbelief? Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen me. How many people, millions and millions of people would love to have seen me like you see me, but you see me and you don't believe. Why? Verse 37, look what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That verse in itself is worth meditating on day and night. And quite honestly, if all Christians would believe this, we could probably get rid of a lot of denominations and a lot of divisions in the church. So, let's look at this a little closer. First, this verse implies here a previous agreement between the Son and the Father, doesn't it? 
the father gives the son, or the father gives the son people for his own possession, gives his son a bride, gives his son um, a, a group of people that he would come to save. So the father's giving the son, right? It, it implies a previous agreement. Now, this is one of several verses in this particular passage that point us to the covenant of redemption. You remember last Wednesday, we were talking about the covenant of redemption and how that is a covenant between the Trinity and has to do with the salvation of the world that the Father has given the Son, His people, and the Son is charged with going down to this earth and dying for their sins, and then the Holy Spirit is charged with applying that life through the power of the gospel to the elect. And this was determined before the foundation of the world. Now, for those of you who missed last Wednesday, this Wednesday at 6 o'clock, a little commercial here, Noah is going to be leading the discussion on the covenant of redemption. And I can tell you plainly that you will see these verses again among others to show that there really is a covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. So there was a prior agreement. The Father gives, all the Father gives me will come to me. So there was a prior agreement about salvation among the Godhead. Um, Ephesians 1.4 speaks of this, right? Paul says, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. What is Paul saying? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before any Adam was ever created. He chose us in him. This is speaking of the covenant of redemption, right? Now, J.C. Ryle sums up the covenant of redemption by this. He says, the Father from all eternity has given to the Son a people to be his own peculiar people. The saints are given to Christ by the Father as a flock, which Christ undertakes to save completely and to present completely at the last day. So let's take a little closer look at this phrase in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Notice the word all there. All certainly does not mean every person in the world. It is limited, isn't it? All that the Father gives me. This is a particular class of people. It's limited to those whom the Father gives to the Son in eternity past. So salvation, our salvation, originates with the Father. It's the Father's initiative. It's the Father's plan. There's some people that think, oh, that the Father, he is really like an old man, grumpy old man that just likes to hit everybody on the head and judge everybody. And Jesus at least has come and say, oh, Dad, don't be so hard on people. That's kind of the way that. But you need to understand that our salvation originates in the heart of the Father. Now, this is unconditional election. A Christian's election is not based upon any foreseen faith or any anticipated righteousness in a person. 
And that's what most evangelicals will argue today, is that God looks down in predestination and election. He looks down, sees who is going to freely choose him, and based upon their choice, he chooses them, which is, ex which is exactly the opposite of the meaning of predestination and election. Um, look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. We don't have time. I would encourage you, if you're working through this and want to read through this, you definitely need to read the end of Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, and then read all of Romans chapter 9 over and over again until you see what's happening in there. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither, that had done nothing either good or bad. So that's important, right? They were not born yet. They had not done anything good or bad yet. And then he, Paul says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now if that word hate kind of gets to you a little bit. This is in terms of the covenant. God's covenant would go through Jacob and not through Esau. And then Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust because he chooses some and not others? what people will accuse God of. Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know, the bottom line is, and here's what you need to start off with to understand this, and that is God is, not under, God is under no obligation to save anyone. And the fact that he has chosen to save some is a grace, right? What, what, where, where people get off is they think that, that, that God is condemning innocent people. There's no, such, there's no such thing. He is perfectly righteous and just to throw us all into hell. But the fact that he saves some, that's the prerogative of God. And there still is no injustice with God if he shows mercy to some and not to others. There's no injustice with God. So this is exactly what Jesus is telling the crowd. The Father elected those whom he would save, those who would be saved. Jesus was sent to redeem the elect with his own blood, and the Holy Spirit was sent to regenerate the elect through the power of the gospel. Hear it again. All that the Father gives me, gives to me, will come to me. All. Every single one. Every single person that the Father gives to me will come to me. That is the heavenly view of salvation, of your salvation and my salvation. There's some benefits to this, right? There is no chance that, a, that an elect person could ever be lost. 
No chance. Which brings us to irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints, doesn't it? This does not mean irresistible grace. does not mean that God's grace can't be resisted. The whole world is resisting God's grace. There is a general call that goes out to everyone, right? Come freely, come on. But because of the world's hatred for God and bondage to sin, nobody comes. Now, now God's not going to send his son to die just and, and have the gospel go out and nobody come. That's how he has to do a work of mercy and grace within the particular people. So the whole world is resisting God's grace. What irresistible grace means that ultimately the, res- the elect cannot resist God's grace. Now, it doesn't mean that, that there are some who are elect who will be saved in the future that they're not resisting God's grace. They're doing that just as a sinner right now. You know, and I hope if there's somebody that, that, that you're praying for, don't stop praying for them. Because just because they don't believe now doesn't mean that they're not part of the elect and they won't believe sometime in the future. Keep praying. But ultimately, it means that the elect will not be able, in the end, to resist God's grace. They will not be able to resist it. But don't think that someone is saved against their will. Because a part of God's making us alive is that he changes our will. And, and when he changes our will and makes us alive, we're not kicking and screaming into heaven. We are grateful to God for giving us the gift of salvation. Now look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's that second part, the second part of that verse. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the perseverance of the saints. Right? Jesus will never cast out the elect. There's not going to be one person who is among the elect who will ultimately be lost. He will never cast them out. Ever. That means a billion years from now, something can't happen in heaven that will ultimately cause a third of uh, the elect to be you know, lost, like the angels or something. No, we are saved to the uttermost. We're saved forever. And Jesus will never cast us out. This means that our salvation is eternally secure. That, by the way, is one of the important benefits of understanding the covenant of redemption. And that's why the Arminian and Pelagians want to get rid of the covenant of redemption. Because in the covenant of redemption is not only our salvation secured, but it's secured forever. Because God has already made that covenant and it's as sure as done, right? It is, it is done. It is complete. Even before the war began, world began, it was decided. Now, John, uh, Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So God began the work, and he will bring it to completion. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? So it's God at work in us. And we need to understand that. That's, that's what the Christian life is, God working in us. 
for his will and his good pleasure. Now, if we put it all together, we can personalize this. Let's personalize what Jesus is saying here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because the Father from eternity past gave you by name to the Son. Now, let that sink in. Before one Adam was created, the Father, by your name, gave you to the Son. And if you have come to the Son, that is, believe in Him, it is impossible for you ever to be lost again. Now, that should give you great comfort. And by the way, that's the reason why those who deny these truths also teach you can lose your salvation. Right? Because it's all wrapped up in the Father and the Son. Later, Jesus is going to say, no one can pluck you out of my hand. My Father is greater than I. No one will be able to pluck, him, pluck you out of my Father's hand. So he doubles down on this in, in, in the verses below, and we'll get there. Now, this is seen throughout Scripture. Look at Revelation 13, 8 says, speaking of the, the beast and those who will worship the beast, it says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So what John is saying here, there was a lamb's book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. That's the covenant of redemption. Your name was written down before one Adam was created. Now, we again see a, another hint of the covenant redemption in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. In that covenant redemption, the Father sends the Son. And Jesus acknowledges that. So, um, that is the plan. So look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Again, he restates it. I will lose no one. Jesus didn't drop to his knees and starts begging them. He says, you know, listen, later... Next week, he's going to say, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. You can't come. Now, notice what he says. Not only will he not lose anyone, but he says, I'll lose nothing, but I will raise him up on the last day, which means that every single one of the elect will be saved and will be raised up on the last day. Now, this is all throughout the Bible. Once you tune into this, you see this everywhere. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph concerning the birth of Jesus? Jesus' name means the Lord is salvation, you know? This is what the angel said in Matthew one twenty one to Joseph. He said, she will bear a son, and, she, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You hear, you hear that? Jesus will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? The elect. The ones whose names were, were written 
in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That's Jesus' mission, to save His people, the people that the Father has given to Him. That's what He's come to do. The angels weren't confused about that. Again, this is limited atonement. Christ's atoning sacrifice covers only His people, only His elect. And, and that doesn't, I think people get caught up with limited atonement. Limited atonement doesn't mean that His blood was not sufficient to save everybody in the world and then some. It was sufficient to do that. All that means is the blood atonement is only applied to the elect because only they will be saved. Now, if this troubles you, then I don't, one, again, it's offensive <laughs> to the flesh, and two, we have no idea who the elect are. And it's kind of like Spurgeon said, who believed this doctrine, by the way, he said, I don't know about all of this, I just keep nominating and God keeps electing them. So, we just preach the gospel and pray. We have no idea who's in, who's out, who's not, right? Just pray, preach the gospel. And then in verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the way the elect are saved. They look to the Son and believe. And by believing, they are given eternal life. And even though we may die, Jesus even says, even though... You may die, yet shall you live, right? Why? Because we will die physically, but there is a resurrection. And Jesus promises that anyone who believes in him, he will raise them up on the last day. He will give them a spiritual, a spiritual and physical, it's a bodily resurrection. He will raise them up and we will never die again. So God is... Is, is saving his people. Now, what about the rest of the people? Well, God is not forcing them to not believe. God just merely leaves them in their own rebellion and sin. I think Lewis said that if you take a sinner who hates God and takes him and, put, and, and you put him in heaven, heaven will be like hell to him. He hates God that much. And so God merely leaves the rest in their sins. But he saves, he shows mercy on, on his people, on the elect. And we keep reading in Romans chapter 9, and Paul addresses that. If you want to read a good book, I would recommend you a, a little book on this. In, in fact, it covers these particular verses. And it's really easy to read. I, I thought it was going to take me a while, but it, it just took me a an hour or two to read it. It's about 100 pages. Um, and it's a book by James White and called Drawn by the Father. And he goes through these verses and examines this really closely. And I would highly recommend this if you're trying to work through this and, and you want to give others something to work through and to read to help them work through it. This is what James White says in this book. He said, Christ is not speaking of theories here. He asserts plainly without equivocation that all that are given to him by the Father will come to him. Y'all got that, right? I mean, 
That's exactly what Jesus said. We don't have to twist it or try to make it say other than what he plainly says. Clearly, White says, we see here the complete sovereignty of God as the owner, since he is the creator of all men. He is free to give men to the Son as the Lord, as their Lord and Savior. What is also clearly presented is the simple fact that if God the Father gives a man to the Son, that man will come to Christ in faith. There is no contingency here, no possibility of this not coming to pass. The Father gives men to the Son for the express purpose of their salvation, and because they are so given by the Father, they will be saved. It is not possible, it is not even possible for any of the elect not to be saved. Or to ever fall away. This is what Jesus is teaching here. Right? This also means, as we wrap this up, this also means that evangelism and missions can't fail because God's people are out there and they will respond to the gospel. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, held to the sovereignty of God and salvation. That's what compelled him to go to foreign countries and preach the gospel because he knew the people of God were out there. And it takes a lot of pressure off of us, right? If you think that you're sharing the gospel and whether somebody believes it or not all depends on how persuasive you are. You know, and I know a lot of preachers, False Creek was like this, right? They always got the preachers that would preach so persuasive that they would get hundreds of people to come forward. You know, they're looking for that right guy that has the most persuasive words. That is the wrong thing to look at. Because you can have a lot, a lot of false conversions, as we know, we've, we've seen it. So it takes the pressure off if we share the gospel with someone and, and they reject it. You don't take it personally. <laughs> they're not rejecting you. Just move on to the next one and keep sharing it. The, God, the, the elect will respond to the gospel. You just got to find them. That's why we tell everyone. A.W. Pink said, So take heart, fellow workers. You may seem to be sowing the seed at random, but God will see to it that part of it falls onto ground which he has prepared. That's why we keep preaching the gospel. And keep doing missions. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The gospel will have its perfect effect and do its perfect work. Now, at this point, some of you might be wondering right now if you are a part of the elect or not. That's probably a good question to ask. Um, now, worrying about whether you're a part of the elect or not shouldn't really concern you. That's, by the way, is way above your pay grade. What should concern you 
at this point, your own, your sole focus should be what Jesus said in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's all you have to be concerned about. Have you looked to the Son? Have you believed in him? If you are trusting in Christ, if you believe in him, that's proof that your name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Lost people will not believe. If you believe, that's how you know. If you're walking and believing and trusting in Christ by faith, that's how you know. Because only the elect will truly come to him and believe in him. Study this. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's not worried that the crowd's not coming to him, not believing in him. He's not worried. He knows exactly how this works. He's not twiddling his thumb or holding his hat in his hand, saying, you know, begging people. He knows that every single one that the Father gives him will come, and he's not going to lose any of them. So he is not panicked at all, and neither should we.